So there's this thing called SIM swapping. At its most basic level, it involves a hacker taking over someone's mobile phone number, which allows them to then steal passwords, take over multi-factor authentication, and drain cryptocurrency accounts. The people who are good at it literally make millions. Do you have like a plan, like when you won't do this anymore? Is there a certain amount of money you'll get to? I think about nine figs. Really? And how close are you? Really far. <laughs> okay. I mean, nine figs, that's a hundred million dollars. That's a few more years at least. That's Yuki. He's big in the sim swapping community. Is it right to think of sim swappers as being younger people? Or do I misunderstand that? That is very, that is very accurate, by the way. A lot of sim swappers are actually like 13 to like 18. Yuki is a little older than that. But most sim swappers are teenagers, which is a large part of the problem. If you have a bunch of adolescents breaking the law with tons of cash and time to burn, it isn't too surprising that things would get a little violent and a little weird. But I'm not sure anyone really expected for it to get this wild. I say, what you need done? He say, oh, I just need you to throw a brick in his window. Shootings, uh, fire bombings. I mean, the worst one we've probably done <laughs> was kidnap someone. If I had to come to it like killings, which has came to that, but I'll speak on that later. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, we go back to an episode we did earlier this year about a gang of sim swappers who are behind something called violence as a service. It's become an acceptable way to settle scores in the sim swapper community, Doxing or defacing websites, they told us, just doesn't send enough of a message. They need to go bigger. So they're throwing Molotov cocktails or slashing tires at their rivals instead. Trouble is, it's getting more popular and commonplace and is bound to affect the rest of us. I think it's fair to say that it's an issue and it's not going away anytime soon. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. The story that brought violence as a service into the spotlight was the arrest of a 21-year-old in New Jersey back in August. His name is Patrick McGovern-Allen, and he was pretty well known in sim-swapping circles. His alias was Tongue, as in inside your mouth. And up until recently, he was living with his grandparents in Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey. He worked at a local restaurant called A Touch of Italy. That is, until the FBI arrested him this summer 
accusing him of taking part in some violence-as-a-service operations. Patrick's arrest was first reported in Krebs on Security. And he appears to be one of the first people to be arrested for this kind of score-settling cyber-meets-real-world crime. Turns out, he was good friends with this guy. Uh, I'm John Gotti. Uh, Not that John Gotti. It's like my alias. Uh, nobody knows like my real name, obviously, so I'm not going to bring that out there. But um... John Gotti is a fellow sim swapper, and he's the co-owner of a group that's dedicated to brickings and other violence for hire. Did you know Patrick uh, McGovern Allen? His name was Tongue? I did. I do. I do. I do. That's my boy. Patrick was a member of a sim swapping group Gotti founded called FNM. Gotti showed us a screenshot of its ownership page to prove that he really was who he said he was. Did you know him only virtually, or did you know him, know him? Um, it is possible that we've encountered each other two or three times IRL. And what was he like? He was a chill dude. Uh, I don't, I don't really know how to explain the guy. He was, he was a bit off, but he was, I don't know, he was a chill dude. He was uh, honorable. Meaning, if he said he was going to do something, he did it. Yeah. But sim swappers we talked to told us Patrick was a little bit reckless. Like the time two years ago that he drove his Lexus into a building. He did drive a car into a house. He did, he did. <laughs> it is what it is. Some people do things sometimes they don't mean to, you know. Accidents happen. I mean, he crashed a car into a building for no reason. Just because he felt like it, so I mean like... You know. This is a sim swapper who goes by the name Fade. He knew Patrick, too. Well, I knew him for a while. We weren't, like, super close or whatever, but I knew him. He had, like, a few brain cells missing, but that's about it. Fade told us Patrick was so reckless, he wasn't surprised when the FBI rolled up on him back in August. He said everyone in the community was expecting him to get arrested. It's like a family. Everyone knows what's going on. Patrick is suspected of taking part in two separate violence-as-a-service jobs in Pennsylvania, a firebombing, and then a shooting a few weeks later. I mean, everyone, everyone of Patrick's friends knew he was going to get arrested. Patrick knew himself he was going to get arrested. I mean, you know, it weren't no secret, but Patrick didn't have much choice. The criminal complaint against Patrick made clear that his operational security wasn't mm, top-notch. For one thing, he put the proof videos of the shooting on both Discord, a kind of messaging platform for gamers, and on Telegram an encrypted communications app. This is one of the videos he posted. It looks like there's two males wearing all black face masks. This is Detective David Hale. He's with the Criminal Investigations Unit in the Westtown East Goshen Police Department. And he's one of the investigators in the case. And this is him describing a proof video Patrick is allegedly linked to. An individual flashes a handgun, a semi-automatic pistol, um, he walks up to the front window. He's probably about 20 feet away from the window and then unloads eight consecutive shots within, you know, a second or two. You ready? Yeah. Justin Active was here. And they shout something. See if you can make out what they say. Justin Active was here! They're saying Justin Active was here. Justin, or Active, is another sim swapper in the community. And we talked to him by text, and he said Patrick was targeting him. In the criminal complaint against Patrick, the FBI said the shooter was wearing an Air Jordan hoodie, a dark balaclava, and semi-rimless glasses. Patrick, the FBI says in the complaint, wears dark semi-rimless glasses, just like the guy in the video. 
The firebombing, which had happened a few weeks earlier, wasn't exactly a stealth operation either. The video shows two suspects in front of this house, and one is wearing a red and black lumberjack shirt. The camera focuses on a bottle of Mad Dog 2020 grape wine. It's stuffed with a cloth fuse, and they're trying to light it. Light it, light it, they say. Light it, light it, fucking light it. The Molotov cocktail bounces off the window frame and sets the front of the house on fire. The video shows them starting to run, and then it ends abruptly. According to the FBI, the people inside the house called 911 and said that something was thrown and then a fire started. They told the police that they heard male voices outside and there was some laughing just before they heard a loud noise and smelled smoke. That video was posted on Discord, too. Discord's trust and safety department found chats from someone called Tongue that seemed to take responsibility for both operations. They gave those to the FBI. Details about those are in the criminal complaint against Patrick, too. And now he's sitting in a Pennsylvania prison awaiting trial, accused of being one of the early adopters of violence as a service. We tried to reach out to Patrick, but couldn't get a response from the Bureau of Prisons by press time. When we come back, violence as a service operations get organized. If you were even like around on that community, you'd definitely hear about it. You would hear about a lot of people getting bricked, their houses shut up. Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Pat was an idiot. This is Yuki again. And by Pat, he means Patrick McGovern-Allen, the guy we were talking about before. He got caught, and that doesn't happen to people who are smart. Hmm. And careful. And careful, yeah. I mean, you can be reckless, and you can be smart, and nothing will happen. But he was just reckless and didn't care about any of it. Yuki, for his part, made violence as a service more professional by creating an online marketplace that solicits and offers up people willing to commit real-life violent crime. He calls it Brick Squad, and he says this is the first time he's spoken to the press about it. Brick Squad is the front lines, you know. You can order, throw a Molotov at their house, get their house, like, shot up, even get the person who's in the house robbed. Just a bunch of other things. I started it as a side project, and it's more like a supply-to-demand type of thing, you know? Like, people really want to get back at their enemies online, so I just decided to hop in on it and be like, you know, why not? Like, why not? Well, there are lots of reasons why not. Back in September... As if to show just how open violence as a service is becoming, Yuki set up a new website to publicize Brick Squad. I went online to take a look at it, and the website actually is pretty basic. 
It has a black background, red type, three simple columns. The heading of the first reads weapon, and it's followed by a short list. Brick, Molotov, shooting, robbery, custom. And the second column has corresponding prices. Two grand for a Molotov, four for a shooting. A link in the third column allows you to go ahead and order. Though Yuki said, Brick Squad doesn't really do its IRL business there. Well, I only put up the website because I wanted to, you know, redirect people to the Telegram, add more attention to it, more accessibility, you know? Their Telegram channel doesn't leave much to the imagination. They offer a kind of match.com of violence. They put people together. One ad asks if anyone will be in Sydney's Hyde Park. Anyone who can be there on September 8th around midday and wants to make $1,000, DM me, it reads. Houston, Florida, reads another. Want to brick a window for 500 Let me know. Well, the prices actually vary a lot. Normally, the starting price would go at like $5,000 to shoot up a house, but not like hurt anyone. Brick Squad facilitates things. They get the address, the instructions, and then hold money in escrow until the deed is done. Brick Squad typically acts as a middleman, though sometimes, if the job is local, they'll go ahead and do it themselves. This is a bricking video that Yuki appears to be in. Shout out to Sydney. Shout out to Gossip Girls. Yuki was here. <laughs> when Brick Squad just facilitates a job, they take a cut for their trouble. If this feels like something out of Goodfellas, there's a good reason why. All these brickings and arson and drive-bys don't exist in a vacuum. They're motivated by the same things that motivate most criminals in the real world, big money and power, and striking fear in the hearts of anyone who crosses you. So it's all business. If you want to steal someone's money, there's a lot of consequences from that. You cross a guy in the sim-swapping community, he'll hire someone to make your life miserable. And this may seem reminiscent of something that was popular about 10 years ago, something called swatting. Apparent hoax had a home in Sarasota surrounded. Nearly three dozen personnel responded to a situation thinking that a teenager killed his own family and then threatened to blow Young up kids home. would call emergency services and get the police to send SWAT teams to somebody's house just to intimidate and harass someone they didn't like. And it got people killed. Detective Hale of the Goshen Police Department says violence as a service is what swatting has become. Swatting is becoming kind of old hat and now they're stepping it up to make it a little bit more serious. In one sense, you could think of this as a thing that only affects cybercriminals, bad people doing bad things to other bad people. But that'd be naive. Once this violence moves into the real world and you've got people throwing bricks at a house, it's no longer just inside the sim-swapping community, no matter what Yuki and Fade and Gotti say. 13 to 18-year-old sim swappers who've made a lot of money as underage cybercriminals are the people who are ordering up these jobs. And it wouldn't be a stretch to think they're probably living with their parents. And their parents probably have no idea that their kids are somehow involved in this thing called sim swapping. Detective Hale says families become casualties too. It's almost laughable that these people literally live in their parents' basements and they're 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. So it's like the cliche, right? Um, and a lot of the parents can't stand the fact that their kids live in their basements because they are getting their doors kicked in routinely. I mean, we, we, we had an individual who lived in our town that she was swatted probably at least a half a dozen times over the course of a year. 
um, other individuals on the other receiving end, it's almost a weekly occurrence. What makes this so hard to control is that most of the people throwing bricks or shooting up a house are minors. You know, it's a criminal mischief, right? You know, it's a kid breaking a window. Guilty. I've done it when I was a kid, you know, throwing an egg on mischief night. But this is about more than mischief or punking somebody you don't like. The intent behind it is a little bit more malice-based. We're looking at a lot of people beginning in their mid-teens, and it goes up until 2021, 22. I've seen some Patrick was in his 20s, so prosecutors could get him on federal charges. But the FBI is unlikely to charge a minor for throwing a brick. So there's an aspect of invincibility that goes along with this. And that could explain why it's getting bigger and more commonplace. Anything with minors complicates because it adds an additional layer um, when it comes to involving parents. It's kind of like bury your head in the sand kind of situation, like not my daughter, not my son. So you have to kind of get over that obstacle first. And soon, it won't just be Brick Squad setting up a website that makes it easier for people to order up a job. Others will innovate too. This isn't just a phase. And there appears to be no remorse about what they're doing. When we asked about that, to a man, they said, hey, this is just part of business. Which means it's all escalating in a way that even sim swappers like Yuki are starting to take unusual precautions. Okay, the thing is, I'm going to tell you, I don't actually have a phone because, well, yeah, I don't have a phone. (laughs) Is that because you know how easy it is to sim swap? (laughs) No comment. This is Click Here. Here are some of the week's top cyber and intelligence stories from the record. Microsoft says the world should brace itself for new cyber attacks out of Russia this winter. The company says Russia's military cyber operations haven't been restricted to Ukraine. Prestige ransomware attacks recently hit Poland's transportation and logistics sector. Microsoft attributes the attacks to a hacking group associated with Russian military intelligence, known as the GRU. These latest attacks, according to Microsoft, were almost certainly meant to collect intelligence on supply routes and logistics for future operations. A new kind of malware has turned up in some Russian organizations. It acts like ransomware, but actually wipes data from infected devices instead of holding it for ransom. This is according to the Moscow-based cybersecurity firm Kaspersky. The new variant, called CryWiper, hasn't been attributed to any specific group. Though wipers appear to have been the cyber weapon of choice ever since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Cry Wiper appears to be unrelated to existing families of wipers, according to Kaspersky. And finally, a well-resourced and ongoing international cyber espionage campaign has been targeting human rights activists, journalists, diplomats, and politicians working in the Middle East. This is according to Human Rights Watch. Analysis done by Google, Mandiant, Proofpoint, and Recorded Future suggests that the hackers have been sponsored by the Iranian government. Full disclosure, Click Here is an editorially independent arm of Recorded Future. After identifying and contacting more than a dozen victims who were unaware their accounts had been compromised, Human Rights Watch called on Google to beef up the security for Gmail users, whose login credentials were stolen as part of the campaign.
Click Here is a production of The Record by Recorded Future. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, your host, writer, and executive producer. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director, and Will Jarvis is our producer and helps with the writing. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski are our editors. Darren Ancrum is our fact-checker. And Ben Levingston composed our theme, and our other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. We want to hear from you, so please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. And connect with us by email at clickhere at recordedfuture.com or our website at clickhereshow.com. We're looking forward to providing you new episodes in January. Have a good holiday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.